Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. Is a quote from Pericles, the prominent and influential Greek statesman, orator, and the first citizen of Athens during its golden age. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, like Pericles, a politician and statesman, is putting forward new ideas to start ambitious projects. For Pericles, it was the Parthenon and building Athens. For our guest, it's powering the country and building the future. Our guest today is the Honourable Joel Fitzgibbon MP, Member for Hunter, New South Wales, a member of the Australian Labor Party. He is currently the Shadow Minister for Agriculture and Resources. Joel was previously Minister for Defence and Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry. He has also served as Chief Government Whip and chaired the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. First elected in 1996, Joel has been re-elected eight times to represent Hunter for the last 24 years. Prior to joining Parliament, he was a business owner and a councillor and Deputy Mayor for Cessnock City Council. Hello and welcome to this special episode of No Limitations, our 50th show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In light of this milestone episode, I would like to personally thank all our listeners around the world and most importantly, our guests who have been a source of inspiration, shared their stories, and given their time to make this show possible. In today's timely discussion, Joel gives us the inside view of Australian politics, the issues that matter, and the challenges that face us as a nation. He talks about what the Labor Party stands for, the need for reform, and for business to stand up. He reminds us during this period of COVID-19 that we have to focus on where we have competitive advantage and we should never let perfect get in the way of the possible. So sit back and enjoy our 50th episode, Perfect or Possible. Joel, welcome to the show. A great pleasure. Growing up with your father, Eric, member for Hunter, what were the conversations like at the dinner table? Well, we didn't sit around the dinner table discussing economics, um, politics, uh, or the future of the world, but I think it was a little different uh, than most dinner tables. I do remember at a young age having a much higher level of awareness uh, of the political system. I recall very vividly a well-intentioned nun at St. Patrick's Primary one day deciding to go on a frolic of her own and give us a civics lesson 
and somehow proceeded to read out to the class the makeup of the then, what she thought, uh, federal ministry in Canberra. And I proceeded to tell her that, in fact, that wasn't right, sister. Uh, there'd been an election and Whitlam was now the prime minister and that was uh, the former ministry. So my awareness was certainly heightened. Yeah. Uh, but I did learn from my father, I think, he was uh, the son of a railway fettler, uh, very much from a working class background, had a tough upbringing. And I think his, his main principle in politics was equality of opportunity, and that's always stuck with me. He hated unfairness, my old man, yep. injustice, and that's always stuck with me, and it's what's always driven me in politics. But you didn't start out straight away as a poly. No. You started fact, as a, uh, was it often what I read, was it automotive electrician? Is that right? And a part-time teacher as well? When I was a young bloke, uh, I only wanted to do one thing, and that's uh, first play first grade football with the Cessnock Goannas, <laughs> and then I hoped to play in what was then the Sydney competition oh, really? before we had a national competition, so I'm showing my age now. Uh, I played first grade rugby league for the Cessnock Goannas, uh, but I didn't quite uh, make the second ambition. Oh, the other thing I wanted to do was a trade. Uh, it was uh, I didn't enjoy school. I enjoyed the social side of school but I wasn't too academic. Um, I, my view is that, that I had ADHD as we know it then, know it now, um, never been diagnosed, still suffer a bit from time to time, I suspect. But I hated concentrating on the things I wasn't interested in. And I've never said this in a public forum before, but when I left school, I, I wasn't even able to secure an apprenticeship initially. My mother forced me to do a pre-apprenticeship course, uh, which I did. Yeah. As a both a mechanic and a, an auto electrician, yeah. and I was plucked out of that course by a good local employer, a good tradesman called uh, named Daryl Lightfoot, who was a great mentor of mine, great tradesman. Uh, and I secured the apprenticeship, and um, I excelled in the in the TAFE studies because I was doing something I mean, you liked. Uh, I liked, yeah. and uh, you know, I, later I went on to do university studies. Um, I think there was a couple of lessons in that. First of all, don't expect kids to do something well if they don't want to be doing it, uh, and two, uh, if you push them in the direction which, you know, where they have strengths, they, they are likely to do well. So how did the um, playing for the Goannas then lead to building a career in, in politics? Well, the day after I finished my apprenticeship, I opened my own business and uh, with a partner, Greg Stacey, great guy, a great tradesman, and uh, we did that for about 10 years. Yeah, okay. And along the while I enjoyed that, running the business, uh, I started to regret not doing more study and thinking further afield. Uh, by the way, playing for the Cessnock Goannas was a real highlight of my life. Uh, I still reflect very fondly on, on that. When, when my son played for the Cessnock Goannas, it was even better. Yeah. Um, but you know, I started to think about you know the future. Did I really want to be on the tools all of my life? Yeah. I started doing small business courses, uh, developed an interest in running for Cessnock City Council, which I did, and where I served for eight years, including a term of deputy mayor. But I didn't have an ambition to be a politician from a, a young age. Um, it just developed over time. And when my old man was elected to the federal parliament, that obviously really sparked uh, a greater interest. And from, from there, really, I never looked back. What was the business that you were, um, you were in? Automotive electrical. So it was a, a workshop, yep. basically, where you drive your car in for repair. And yep. I both managed the business, did the book work. But, uh, and you could on, and, and, on the tools or better and, in the sales? And provided most of the worry. And... Um, but I was on the tools. I think I was a pretty good tradesman. I think most people who knew me, people still bar me up, people older than me say, oh, I remember when you used to fix my 
my car or my my truck, and they say it so fondly, it delights me. Um, but I think I was pretty good at that, and the business did did well. But I was ready to move on to something else. That's why I was doing a bit of study, and uh, that's why I joined Cessnock Council. But even when I was elected to Cessnock Council initially, I I didn't uh, didn't dream that one day I'd be in senior positions in Canberra. Age of thirty four, weren't you elected to the House of Reps? That's right. Elected to Cessnock Council at uh, twenty five, which is not a record by any stretch, but uh, pretty young. What did you set out to achieve when you made it to federal? Well, I was driven by that uh, key objective I spoke about earlier, and that's quality of opportunity. Obviously, it's changed a bit now, but it's not still in those days my hometown. I mean, we're all we're all creatures. Of from uh, uh, of where we come from, and Cessnock's very much been a working class town for a long time. It's changing now, um, but uh, you know, I worked up. I grew up around working class people, um, who had, some of whom had opportunities, some of whom did not. Uh, intergenerational unemployment has always been a very uh, keen focus for me. That is, you know. Yeah young people who have never known either their parents or their grandparents to have worked. And obviously motivation becomes a difficulty uh, in that culture. So they've always been the things that drive me and they, and, they, and they still do. What did Labor represent in 1984 when your father spoke to his constituents? I guess to when you're out there in 2020 speaking to your constituents now, what's well, changed? Labor was a, a party in transition in 1984. Obviously, uh, it was still uh, struggling in the wake of uh, the Whitlam era. It had its its highlights, but it's also had its difficulties and challenges. And uh, Hawke and Keating, you know, united together to to drive the party in a, in a new direction, recognizing that the economy was sclerotic, that the model was was broken and and out of date and and needed reform. So I. I joined a party uh, that was still very much focused on blue-collar Australians, which, of course, is my key interest, but also determined that if we're going to lift those blue-collar Australians up and maintain their jobs, that we'd, we'd need significant economic reform. So I suppose one way of putting it would be to say that it was shifting uh, almost centre-right at, at the time, certainly in economic terms, and that's the party I was attracted to. You've had a pretty interesting career. You've had some highs and you've had some, some lows. We'll probably dig in a little bit more as we go along, but why do you do the role, I guess, is the first thing. And look, talk us through, for the benefit of the audience, what is the life of a federal politician, day in, day out? Greg, politics is not for everyone. That That is for sure. Yeah. Um, forget the, the underworked and overpaid bit. Uh, I would work uh, 70 hours a week, every week, uh, without doubt. I mean, you're never not working, really. Uh, I was driving to the studio today and I worked in the car all the way. That's just yeah. what we do. You're on a plane, you're still working because we have these wonderful devices now that don't allow us to walk away from the desk uh, any minute of the day. 11 o'clock at night, I'm usually still watching a program but reading something at the same time. Yes, I'm a bloke, but I can do two things at once, <laughs> depending on what they, they might be. So, And it's a tough job. We uh, A lot of pressure and, you know, we do the job interview every three years. Um, That's right. Um, I know work is somewhat obscure these days, but not everyone has to do that. And a huge toll on, on the family. Yeah, um, no doubt about that. So, But having said all of that, I love it. And uh, if I had my time over again, I'd, I'd take the what, what exactly do, the same path. What do you love about it? I think the capacity to drive change is obviously the 
the main attraction. We all have a view about what we think our country should look like and yep. the, the opportunity to stand in the national parliament and be part of a process which gives you uh, a, a seat behind the driving wheel, if you like, and the opportunity to drive that change is obviously the main attraction. But it's also locally being having the capacity to help people and help groups. Uh, that's a that's a big lift, an opportunity to invite someone into your office who's in trouble and to see them out the door having helped them. There's there's a bit of a, a rush in that. Let's change gear. Let's get let's get amongst it. Can you talk us through your position in relation to the subsidies at the moment, with regards to the new gas pipelines? Big news. You're standing pretty firm, Greg. The the Labor Party. Uh, when I was a young person, yep. a bit younger than I am now. Uh, people, I'd hear people would say to me, or I might hear people say to ask other people the question, you know, what's the Labor Party stand for? Correct. And they would inevitably say, well, Labor's for the workers, and the Liberal Party's for the bosses, the, yeah. the, 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 for business. And that was a an oversimplified dichotomy, but it was a it was a fair measure of what the political parties stand for. And I think that's all become a, a little bit confused now. Um, you see the Liberal Party trying to track back to the centre stealing off Labor's blue-collar base and the Labor Party drifting to the left uh, with an almost obsessive focus uh, on issues like climate change. Yeah. And not my words, but some people would say same-sex marriage and uh, the welfare state and things uh, you know, considered you know, progressive left uh, matters on the agenda. So... Um, are they following the US Democrats in that sense? Like, wh why are we going so far left? Well, centre-left parties, I think, are in trouble right around the world. You look at what happened to the Labor Party in the UK under Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it was just nuts, wasn't it? Correct. I mean, how could you expect ever to be elected with yeah. that manifesto? It yep. was just... It was bordering uh, socialism. It, yeah, it was... It was well, Marxism almost. Well, we can agree, <laughs> I think, on that. So, yeah. you know, I think... Particularly when you you have centre right parties sneaking to the centre, you know it sort of tends to push the other party, the centre left party, further to the left. Yeah. Uh, but being electable is not uh, yeah, uh, an objective in itself, of course. Um, but it is the means to uh, having the capacity to to make a difference. Yeah, agree. So you can have the best suite of public policy in the world. Uh, best ever seen, but if you're never going to serve in government, it's not much point to it because you never have the opportunity, therefore, to implement it. So, you know, when you're developing policy, it has to be good policy, but it has to be one capable of taking the Australian electorate with you, or any electorate for that matter, and therefore capable of securing you an election win. Um, so, in politics is in part the art of compromise. You know, parties of the extreme left, like the Greens, um, are ideologically pure. Well, they're not always. They voted against um, um, Kevin Rudd's carbon constraint, of course. Yes. Um, but they're only ever chasing 14, 15% of the vote. If they, you know, if they get 10, they're happy. Um, but the Labor Party is a party of government historically and wants to continue to be a party of government, or at least I hope we do. And to do that, you you need to get, you know, hopefully a vote, primary vote with a four in front of it or something close to that. Uh, so that's that means compromise. It means not... Allowing the possible uh, to get no sort of the perfect to get in the way of the possible, um, and you know if Labor is going to win the next election, uh, it will you know it will need to engage in plenty of compromise. But keep going on that point, Joel, on regards to gas and the impact of the price of gas, manufacturing, etc. And uh, how do we stitch ourselves up as a nation in paying a fortune for gas to come back to us? 
You're right. We are an energy-rich country, and we're paying too much for, for energy across the board, and it's a ridiculous situation. It's unacceptable. Now, some have an obsession with a cleaner economy. Uh, I support a cleaner economy as well. Uh, I believe in climate change. I believe humankind is making a contribution to, to climate change, and I think humankind has to do something about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but Australia is responsible for 1.3% uh, of carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there's only one so much we can do here. Uh, what we need to do is just enough to give us the the moral authority to preach the gospel in international fora. You know, we need to be able to say, you guys aren't doing enough. Uh, and you can't say that if you're not doing enough yourself, but it has to be kept in perspective. We now have 24% of our energy coming from renewable sources. It took us about just over 20 years to get there. And if in another 10 years, uh, we have 50% of our energy coming from renewables, which is unlikely, I think, but we'd like to think we'd be tracking there, then axiomatically we'll require 50% of the rest of the energy to come from fossil fuels. That's just a fact. There's no other way of looking at it. So we need to be sensible about making sure those fossil fuels can continue to make a contribution. Otherwise, we're going to have energy price spikes because there's not going to be enough energy to go around. Uh, that means a couple of things. Uh, we need to get these aging coal, or the younger of the aging coal generators going as long as we can. And I think carbon capture and storage, a low emissions technology uh, can help us do that. But we'll need an abundance of gas as the transition fuel to uh, renewables economy. And that transition will take a long, long time. And But even apart from that, if we don't get more gas out of the ground into the market, then prices are going to be higher, manufacturers are going to be closing and jobs will be lost. And one of the things you have to uh, remember about gas is that it's not just uh, a fuel we use for electricity generation, it's a fuel we use for heating, and it's a product which feeds into the manufacture of many of the products we rely heavily upon, um, things like ammonia and the fertilisers. Where do people think the fertilisers are going to come from without the gas? So it's not just about, uh, it's not just a climate debate and an energy debate, it's, a, it's an industry debate. And it's about stopping the decline in our manufacturing sector and hopefully turning around that decline in the manufacturing sector. You know, every Paul Keating once said that uh, of microeconomic reform, uh, going to any pet shop and the resident galah will be talking microeconomic reform. Now, uh, Paul is good on a turn of, of phrase. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, his point was that everyone's talking about it, but does anyone really understand it and have really have an idea about what to do about it? And what he was basically saying was, well, I, I get it and I'm doing something. Um, this debate about COVID is the same. You know, everyone's got a view now. This is an opportunity. This has proved you know, neoliberalism is dead and everything we've been doing is wrong and our opportunity to change it all. Well, I, I reject that proposition um, by any measure. Look, our economy wasn't going gangbusters uh, prior to COVID nineteen. There's no doubt about that. Wages were stagnating. Uh, growth was, you know, was was um, pretty flat. Yep. But you know, by international standards, the model was working all right for us. Always a room for change, and that's why I'm a member of the Labor Party uh, to push change. But this idea that we have to turn our economy on its head now because of COVID nineteen is a silly one. Yeah. Uh, we do need to take lessons from it. It's exposed, for example, our vulnerabilities in terms of import dependence, our, our lack of um, independence on fuel and food, uh, for example. It's a good opportunity maybe to deal with some of the casualisation thing issues in the workforce, uh, but casualisation is part of modern, uh, modern economy. I mean, 
a lot of people who work casually want to work casually. It suits them. But we don't need to reinvent the wheel. What we do need to do is think about recovery and creating some saving and recovering some jobs. And while there are some long-term things you can do when people talk about green steel coming from hydrogen yeah, and all yep. of that, yep. um, which, is, which is great, but are probably decades away, uh, people now are concerned about their job today, next week and next month and next year and how they're going to pay the mortgage and, you know, raise the kids. So we need to be talking to them. But we need to plan, Joel. Otherwise, it's just all words. We so, you know, plan. you asked about, about that, about COVID, and we're all getting a bit muddled. Mm. I think half of us are turning off because I don't know what the plan is. So well, the, what well, is the plan, Joel? Well, just is, say Victoria gets herself squared away. Well, there is no plan. Okay, uh, so what, and, Okay, so what's Labor going to What's their plan? Well, Labor's in opposition, and I'm sure we're <laughs> developing a plan. <laughs> But um, look, I just wrote a you know a, a fifteen hundred. But is that good enough, Joel? Come on, you. The only reason we're going to have good government is if we have good opposition. We well, need good opposition. And the opposition after the debacle of the last federal election needs to take some time to rethink its position and and plan carefully. And and we won't be rushed into that. Meanwhile, there's a bloke called Morrison, yep. uh, running a seven year old government that doesn't have a plan. And look, he but he's might- a long way ahead in the polls. He is a long way ahead of the polls, and I think that COVID has been a great boost for incumbents. Yep, um, and he's benefited from that. But we do need a national plan. But I've just written a fifteen hundred word piece for ASPE, which I think will be published, where I I just focus uh, just on uh, one area in particular, which is a little bit out of left field, and that's food security. Okay. Yeah. Now uh, politicians are fond of saying Australia could never have a food security uh, problem because we we produce you know, two thirds more food than we eat. You know, we, we're a country of 25 million people and we feed 75 million. And well, that's great. And that's a great thing for Australia. It earns us foreign exchange and creates a lot of work for a lot of farmers, et cetera. But, but is that true? You know, as an island continent, is that is that true? And uh, my proposition is not necessarily true. And while it's unlikely we could have a food security problem, it's still possible. Mm-hmm. And we take house insurance. Uh, not because we expect the house to burn down, but we think that the consequences of it burning down are, are severe it's, and it's worth the investment. And I think that's how we should approach food security as well. We are almost totally dependent on imported fuels now. Yeah, uh, We need fuel Madness. For, for farm machinery. Um, if our sea lanes of uh, communications were blocked, yep. you know, that would be gone. Yep. Um, we are dependent uh, on uh, an enormous number of inputs into our food production. Uh, one interesting example is uh, crop protections, the chemicals farmers use to lift their productivity and yield. Uh, we are almost entirely now dependent uh, on imports there, mainly from China. Uh, we've got the challenges of climate change yep. uh, upon us, which is going to affect our, our output. We have this sort of almost obsession with, with volume into commodity markets where we are increasingly price, price takers. Uh, so in our geopolitical you know, circumstances look uncertain. We, you know, what will the rise and rise of China look like? Will it? Will well, it you, you, continue you've made at some, pace? You've made some interesting comments there of late. So, what do you think it looks like? Well, will their rise continue at pace? How will how will she use her economic power uh, and therefore military power? Yeah. Uh, what will be the response reaction of the United States over time? What happens if Donald Trump secures a second term? Does he? now use that mandate to become more insular, withdraw from our part of the world. That would be an interesting scenario uh, for Australia. Uh, so, you know, we need to be able to walk and chew gum too at the same time. We need to uh, secure our relationship with the United States and keep that alliance uh, and friendship going strongly, but we need to be mindful that they might not always be here. 
Okay, so let's and wind we need a relationship with China. So let's wind it back a little bit. What you're saying about coal is: Are you going to support or not support any form of new coal-fired power station? Is that off completely? Well, I support new coal mines. I understand yeah, that part, but no, not. I, but, but you Greg, wouldn't build a. Greg, I will get there. Most of our coal goes to export markets, obviously, and, and we should continue to, to mine it while ever there's demand for it, because we make good money yep. uh, for for the product of the product, and it creates lots of jobs. Coal generation is an entirely different thing. Only a minority of our coal goes to local generation. Mm. Uh, across the country, um, 50% of our coal generation capacity is uh, 30 years or older. So our coal generators are ageing. In New South Wales, it's more, more like 90%, uh, 30 years old or older. Mm-hmm. Now, when a station like Liddell in my electorate hits 50 years of age, you just forget it. I mean, you can't just keep the old girl running beyond 50 years of age. And, you know, politicians who, who suggest otherwise are just uh, you know, looking for votes, basically. Okay. So as they age, what's going to happen? Well, the, the market is suggesting no one's going to invest in a coal-fired generator. Why? Well, you need a 40 to 50-year return to make the numbers stack up. And we don't know what the energy system's going to look like in 10 years, let alone in 20 years, let alone in, in 50 years. So people are looking at that market and saying, well, that's, that's, I'm not going to put my money there. And unless you're advocating that government should build them or su- heavily subsidise them, which, which I'm not, then they're not going to happen. There's no law against it in Australia. It could happen tomorrow, um, but it's very expensive and probably won't happen. But we are subsidising renewables. Uh, we have been subsidising renewables. Uh, yeah. That is true. Um, but there's, a, there's an end game there, and that's cleaning up the economy and addressing climate change. And if done smartly, it can create jobs as well but not the sort of jobs you'll find uh, in coal generation or in the coal mining industry. But the transition is on. The market is taking us there. Governments aren't really deciding it. How could they be? Because the government doesn't have an energy policy, so the market must be doing it entirely uh, on its own. Uh, And we need to ensure that part of that transition is gas. We just can't get there uh, without it. Now, we've got an abundance of gas uh, to tap here in Australia, and we should be taking the opportunity. And it needs to be part of a government plan. Now, very recently there was a debate about underwriting gas, long-term gas contracts. Well, right. it's a pretty simple one. If you're if you're going to build a new gas pipeline, which is going to not only deliver more gas but add to the competitiveness of the market, and this is really important for prices, uh, it's going to cost you you know one, two, three billion dollars. You've got to raise the funds to do that. You go to the market and say, so I need a couple of billion dollars, uh, and the market looks at the risk. And it says, well, that looks like a pretty good investment if I can be sure you've got the customers. Have you got the customers? Well, not yet. I can't get the customers until I've got the finance, uh, yeah, chicken right. and the egg. Yep. So what the government says is that we'll underwrite it. You know, We'll be the customer if you fail to deliver. It says to the financiers, don't worry, we're, we're the customer of last resort. You can't lose here. So the financiers put their money in. They build the pipeline. Customers are secure. They wouldn't be building it, Greg, if they didn't believe the customers were there. Uh, government's off the hook. But it has played an important role in facilitating the financing of that project. And what it's also done is encourage uh, local investment as opposed to such a heavy reliance on, on foreign investment. And that's got to be a good thing too. No, I agree. But if we look at China, India, what the US and what they pump out and the power that they use, none of them have signed up to agreements as, as, as we know. If you look at clean, real clean energy, would it ever come up with uranium would nuclear ever come up in our lifetime? If you're going to if you're going to put that paper together, as you said you've done, sixty percent of the world's uranium sits in Australia. 
and it has no emissions. Uh, we have the largest reserves in the world. Uh, and in a parallel universe, you'd, you'd dig it up, you'd mill it, you'd enrich it, you'd turn it into fuel cells, you'd lease them around the world with an order to trail, you'd bring them back here and you'd bury them in one of our deserts. But do you remember I said never let the perfect get in the way of the possible? Yes. There is no community support for Australia doing that. Okay. So move on, I say, and and where you know people are supportive of the strategic direction in any case, uh, it's too expensive. Uh, we don't have a nuclear civil industry. Uh, it would be all too hard for Australia. I know small modular reactors, are. Uh, people argue they are changing that dynamic uh, a bit. I'm sure it looks attractive to some people. Imagine just dropping an SMR next to one of our aluminium smelters and just yep. you know letting it run at the whole smelter. It sounds attractive, but it is expensive and the community support's not there. And look, while they are safer than they used to be and they're liberally used in so many countries around the world, uh, we just don't, well, we shouldn't need to take the risk in this country because we should be able to tap a lot of other cheaper, available now resources, including coal, of course, gas. Okay. If things become more difficult with China, what effect will it have on our coal exports? And in particular, I guess for someone like yourself, the Hunter region. If China just decided uh, tomorrow to accept no more thermal coal from Australia, then it would virtually shut the Hunter Valley coal industry down. Yeah, right. Uh, we, you know, we put up 160 million tonnes out through the port of Newcastle, largest single coal port in the world. Um, and uh, it would, you know, if if not uh, an immediate fatal hit, it would it would send investment running, and uh, the the industry would be in real trouble. I mean, we still got big markets like South Korea and Japan, and to a lesser extent India. But you know, a lot of investment would be banking on China being part of the game because it's a developing nation, and people know that it's going to continue to suck up a lot of thermal and coking coal. Uh, in the decades ahead, uh, even though it, it, it itself is a huge producer of coal, of course, it will yep. need all the coal it can get its hands on. So it would be a devastating blow uh, to the Hunter Valley, and it explains in part while, why I've been quite vocal yeah. uh, in my demands that people be more sensible and more discerning about the way we talk about China. Australia should never take a backward step on its national security. If China's being bad, we should say so. If it's being bad in the uh, in a way which is which hurts Australia, we should say so more loudly. Um, and if it's doing things that aren't consistent with our our, our attitudes uh, as as Australians, then we we should feel entitled to say so. But we don't need to go out there offending it unnecessarily for no reason. Yeah, now, but when, when when do you stand up, Joel? You, you, I think you made a comment. Be careful, and let's not lead too fast with our commentary. But yet at the same time, you're going to say stand up. Yes, stand up if they're doing something to us which requires a response. But uh, they are our largest export market, our largest trading partner. When, when the Prime Minister in the early days of COVID ran out ahead of the rest of the world and said, we need an inquiry, yep. but worse, said we need weapon-style inspectors, you know, going into Wuhan, you know, I, you know, I envisage kicking doors down and stealing laptops. Yep. I mean, that is just a ridiculous thing to say. What we needed to do is let the international community take the lead, think about what an inquiry would look like, agree on what an inquiry should look like, and then get on with it. But getting ahead of the game, just calling for an inquiry without before knowing what an inquiry should look like, what it's looking for, how it would progress its work, was just silly. And in those early days after that, he didn't get much you know, international support. 
that did change over time because naturally they were always going to have an inquiry. All Scott Morrison was trying to do is garner local domestic votes by showing he could be tough on China and, you know, the people who alleged at least were the source of the of the virus. So he was putting his own political interest in the head of the national interest because we are seeing retaliation in the form of tariff on barley's, the suspension of the licenses from some of our meat processes, and there was a lot of talk. Uh, thankfully, it's subsided at the moment that they might start getting tough on thermal coal as well. They do that, we're in trouble. Uh, well, Hunter Valley will be in trouble, and when the Hunter Valley sneezes, the rest of the state catches a cold. Has the Labor Party got a defined policy on energy? It does have one very defined uh, policy uh, which I support, and that is uh, an ambition to get the economy to zero net emissions by 2050. Now, when, when I talk about zero net emissions, I like to remind uh, or highlight for people the word net. It doesn't mean we're not going to be emitting any emissions. It means that we're going to be finding uh, other ways, of, if you like, to use the Australian vernacular absorb as much as we're we're emitting, so there's a net uh, there's a net outcome, and I think that is doable. And I'm sure you know that I think every state premier in Australia has a policy to get to zero net emissions. Uh, some of the biggest companies, including resources companies in the country, have a policy to get to zero net emissions by 2050. The National Farmers Federation has a policy to get to or to work towards zero net emissions. Um, but saying you're going to get there is the easy part. Uh, the rubber hits the road when you have to develop the policies that are able to take you there. And for the Labor Party, yeah, that's a work in progress. But if I'm um, a manufacturer, Joel, am I running out of time? Because the price of energy is killing me. Well, there are many factors which impact on on, on the price of energy. And, um, you know, concerns about emissions are, are, are but one. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm still paying a high price, aren't I? But there's there's not been a, a you know a, a political leader uh, in recent decades. I mean, John Howard went to the 2007 election with a promise to introduce an emissions trading scheme. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Rudd had one. Gillard had one. Malcolm Turnbull had one. Brendan Nelson had one. Tony Abbott never had one, although he pretended to have one. So he, so which was an admission that you you need an energy policy. In a sense, Morrison still has his direct action plan. Um, so everyone agrees we need one, so we just need a sensible one and an effective one. And that's why Albanese recently reached out to Morrison and said, well, you produce one, and we, if we think it looks reasonable, we'll back it. And if it looks a bit like the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, which was Malcolm Turnbull's model, you know, we'll back that. Um, so we're trying to play a, a pretty sensible and productive role in, in that regard, but the, the coalition is divided, have been uh, for a long time. That's why Malcolm Turnbull wasn't able to get his model through the, the party room. And the the conservatives are now are now hooked on this like a junkie. Uh, they know that every election there are votes in this idea of not having an energy policy, and spending all their time just whacking the Labor Party, and that's what they'll continue to do. And maybe one day, well, people will work out. It's not a very good thing for the country. You go at your earlier point. Are we um are we ever going to be the food bowl of Southeast Asia, or is that just pie no, in the sky? No, that's a joke. So who who came up with it? And why has it been peddled for years? Political populism is on the rise, and this is just part of that mantra. So we can't we can't do anything about all this opportunity we've got sitting up in Northern Territory, which we keep reading about. No. We are the driest inhabited continent in the world. We have very limited quality soil resources as a proportion of our land mass, very, very tiny as a proportion of a very large land mass. Um, we rely heavily on foreign labour 
We've got about 50,000 people working on our farms every year mm-hmm. uh, because uh, we don't have the people to grow a lot more uh, food. Um, so, you know, you've got a small amount of water, you've got a small amount of soil, you've got a small amount of workers, and you've got a small amount of capital. You know, we're heavily, uh, you know, as, a, as a country of 25 million people and even less savers than that, we very heavily rely on foreign capital and we've lost our taste for foreign capital because of populism. So how in the hell are you going to you know, double your output in agriculture um, is absolutely beyond me. In fact, it, it's not beyond me, it's just impossible. What we need to be doing in agriculture, given the climate's going to become you know, more challenging, uh, is to spend more time thinking about value rather than volume. We have this enormous misallocation of resources in Australia. Our natural resources are going to low-value products. And if you're going to follow the textbooks, that's not, that's that's not, smart. That's not what you would do. No. Uh, you'd make sure you go up that value curve and direct those resources to uh, higher-value products. Now, that's not volume. So we're never going to feed Asia, but, gee, we could make a lot more money in Asia if you know the middle-class Chinese were prepared to pay $20 for a kilo of steak because the fat in the marbling was actually good for you, uh, which is something Dr. Roger Dawkins has been uh, working on. I exaggerated when I said good for you, but certainly not as bad for you as the other stuff. Um, You know, it stays liquid at low temperatures. But are we missing a trick, Joel? Could you talk about rural Australia, which is always up and down? There's a lack of water supply. There's a lack of dams. There's a lack of infrastructure. If we invested in it, okay, if we somehow got that miracle capital, which we seem to be splashing around a bit at the moment, and we actually started putting out a plan 10, 15 years out, we know there's a drought coming. All right, it's going to be next couple of years, and then there's going to be another one, then it's going to be another We're suckers. We, we don't do anything about it. So when are we actually going to get smart? You're, you're the politician. When are we actually going to get smart about thinking 20 years ahead? Because couldn't that change if we got some serious infrastructure out in the bush? You're expecting all your politicians to be smart. <laughs> Well, I'm it, hoping. It, it, look, it's it's it, it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I continue the line. If you're chasing value rather than volume, you need less water. So we need water retention. We need dams. But let's be smart about which ones we build. Let's build the ones designed to fuel the the new high value products. Uh, that should be part of a strategic plan. Have we got the plan? Well, I'll make this point. Uh, not long before the 2013 election, Labor, the Labor government. Uh, Produced a national food plan, okay. and it's look. It's not. Uh, it's not the most fantastic plan ever known to man, but it's a pretty good one. I thought it was the at least the start of the development of a broader national plan. Now we lost government uh, just months after. Uh, I knew the plan well because I was the agriculture minister. That is what I call the golden era in agriculture when Joel Fitzgibbon was the minister. All of eleven weeks, I think. I think it was, um, but we lost, and and then the new government didn't have any taste for a plan, an overarching plan providing strategic guidance for farmers, investors and the like. Uh, Barnaby Joyce had his 2015 white paper. That was laughed out of the room five minutes after it was produced and we've had nothing since. Now, so I've been banging on and banging on about the need for a a strategic plan for for agriculture. And the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, just 12 months ago went to the Dubbo Bush Summit and said, I backed the NFF's objective to growing the value of the industry to $100 billion yes. by 2030. Yep. And guess what? I'm going to charge Bridget McKenzie, who was the minister at the time, agriculture minister, with the job of developing the plan. 12 months on, no plan. 
No in plan. fact, she's not the minister anymore, and there is no sign of a plan. So we've lost seven years, uh, and you can never get that back. But it's not—it's no reason to give up, and the government needs to get on with it. And uh, if we're fortunate enough to to win the next election, I'll get on with it. Do you create a plan? Create a plan, and it has to be a comprehensive plan. And how far ahead would you look, Joel? You look decades ahead, and from my perspective, and. You know, this is not the collective view of the Labor Party. The starting point has to be one a realization that we that, that we are constrained on natural, human, and financial capital, uh, and therefore we need to look at value. And then you start planning uh, from there. Obviously, research and development and innovation becomes a big part of that plan because if you're chasing value, Dr. Roger Dawkins again, yep. that's R and D, that's innovation, that's commercial. Well, I hope one day that will be commercialization. So. Uh, R&D has to be a very big part of it, but, you know, you need to take the farm community with you, of course, because, you know, some of these people are now um, looking all the time at volume. That's been their model for a long, long time. But I think if you take them through the conversation, they'll come to realise that with those limited natural resources, capital, financial, human resources, then it might be necessary to think about doing things differently. Are we ever going to see the renaissance then of manufacturing, Joel, under your, under your plan? Uh, I hope so. Um, it's, a, it's a great tragedy uh, to watch the decline of manufacturing here in Australia. And look, I, you know, I consider myself in the sensible camp here. You know, we're not going to remain in manufacturing where we clearly don't have a competitive or comparative advantage. No, we, but we've got the smarts. Exactly. Um, so again, we've got to look up the value curve. Um, we're going to look to R&D and look for our potential competitive advantage. Having said that, uh, I, I think one of the things that I said earlier that COVID's highlighted our vulnerabilities in a number of areas. And, you know, when you think about what's essential to us, it's fuel because you can't drive industry uh, without fuel. Yeah, that's sovereign uh, risk. It's food yeah. uh, and, it, and it's, it's medical related. You, you have to have access to medicines and, and medical devices, et cetera. Now, I believe there's an argument for de for departing from the the economic orthodoxy on these issues. Um, you know, I'm a you know I'm I'm, I'm kidding ask in my approach to to the economy, but I think there may be a case for doing something a little bit differently, um, departing from the orthodoxy where things are absolutely essential to us like that. Now we've done it in defence for years. I mean, if you uh, came down from Mars. Um, you became an Australian and someone said, we're going to build submarines and frigates here, you'd laugh. Um, you, know, you, you just wouldn't believe you'd be so silly, the population of 25 million people. You know, if you, if you're United States, you're going to build a new, uh, new submarine. You, you, build the, you build the first one, then you build 100 more. That's right, yeah. So there, you have economies of scale. Here in Australia, you build a submarine, you build one, and then you build five more, and or hopefully this time around, 11 more. But it's not enough. But we do it anyway because we want to maintain the capability here in Australia uh, in case we find ourselves on our own. Now, that should be true of fuel. So, so we, we pay a big premium for those, those platforms. So we pay a lot more for a submarine than we should or need to uh, for that reason. And you're impressed uh, with the current deals being done? No, I'm not. But that's, that's another issue. Um, in, in, but I should say in submarines, we look for a unique capability. But the, 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 the principle is we, we're prepared to pay a premium to, to retain the skills and ability and capability here in Australia. Now, why wouldn't that be true of fuel? Why wouldn't that be true of food and food manufacturing? Okay. Why wouldn't that be true of medicines? So, you know, there needs to be some thought given to not necessarily 
following the most economically efficient path to an industry, but also factoring in the idea that, you know, we need source efficiency. You mean- and, and just on that point, I hear people agreeing with me say, oh, you know, refining is a perfect example. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But what are you refining? You need crude oil to That's refine right. into petrol and diesel. Uh, and yet we've lost our will to get oil out of the ground in this country. Bass Strait, as you know, is in decline. Yep. And we need a new province. And there's plenty of oil out there. Well, we believe there is. But, you know, the environmental movement is resisting any attempt to derive that oil. Now, the US economy is going very well, not because Donald Trump's such a genius, um, but because they discovered shale, shale oil and lots of it. That's what that's what's driving the US and economy. And they're independent now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're well read. I'm impressed. Um, so, so now we we just had a company, Equinor, a uh, Norwegian-based company, uh, leave the market after spending a lot of money here uh, and getting to a very important stage of their exploration drilling uh, just off the Great Australian Pipe. And they provided a number of reasons for leaving, and I believe every one of them. But there's another reason they didn't talk about publicly, and I can understand why. And, and that is the risk inherent in sticking around and facing all the legal challenges they knew were coming from the environmental groups. Uh, and we need to deal with that issue. Uh, the environment's really important and we need to have the most stringent rules in the world because we're a wealthy country and we should be able to afford to. But we can't have this situation where foreign investment just won't come here anymore because they know that uh, the hoops they'll need to jump through are too hard. You've got Santos in Narrabri, Yep. Now in about its 12th year trying to get an approval there. Yep. You have Ackland Mine in a New Hope in, in Queensland uh, in their 12th or 13th year. Yep. Still haven't got an approval for a mine extension. Now, this is a huge sovereign risk. Uh, we are a resources country. We've, we once rode on the sheep's back, and for many decades we've been riding on the back of the resources sector. Now, if we don't want it, say so, yep. and we'll, we'll go and be a poorer economy and a poorer community. But if you want to maintain the living standards, you've got to back the resources sector. And if you want that energy independence, well, you need to be able to derive your crude oil from within our own boundaries. I might back the energy sector, but am I going to back the politicians to stand firm? Or are they, going to, are they just going to float in the wind when it comes to the hard call? Australian politicians are a very diverse group. They are. I hope the majority will see. But this is all about the that, country. That we, we can't maintain the living standards we've enjoyed. Uh, for many decades now. We can't have a manufacturing sector and we can't keep providing good blue-collar jobs. And not just blue-collar jobs, because in the manufacturing sector, of course, uh, some of those jobs would be quite sophisticated. But we can't do any of that uh, if we don't have the very source uh, almost of, of our existence, and that is energy, oil, gas, etc. Renewables, yes, and hydrogen will come. Yeah. But you know, it's some way off. Blue hydrogen's getting closer. And, you know, we, we might be an exporter of blue hydrogen in the not-too-distant future. I hope we are. Um, but, you know, so many of those things are still a long way off and people are worried about, I think I said earlier, tomorrow, next week, next year, uh, more worried about that than they are about what's going to happen in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And on renewables, by the way, there's a reason people are sceptical about jobs in the renewable sector. And that is that they don't know anyone who works in it. Do you, Greg? No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't. Now, um, some of those who are more ambitious for renewables will say, 
we're not just talking about the jobs in the generation side. Yeah. We're talking about the, the jobs that will be fueled by cheaper sources of energy. Well, when you have a think about it, Greg, most of the decline in our manufacturing occurred when we had low energy costs. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So this assumption that somehow you'll make us internationally competitive because you can lower energy costs through renewables uh, may be in part true, but it's it's not the not the whole formula. And, and of course, all those wind turbines and solar panels are imported, Greg. I'm sure you'd know, mainly from China. And expensive as well, and expensive to repair, don't last forever, including batteries as well. Very true. So I was reading, there's a, there's a couple of books out there which will come to one in a second. Um, this all comes to a bit of a, um, I guess, an opportunity for someone like yourself, Joel, uh, or the Labor Party to, to sit back and reflect on this, I guess, is around, you talked about Keating-esque and the famous accord. Is business and government or business in both sides of, of politics really coming together? Because I think it's been marginalised. We've seen, you talked about COVID, but it obviously came out during the period in Victoria. It seemed to be a lack of breakdown of communication. Now, if you're talking about 20, 30 years out in sovereign risk, sooner or later, we've got to cut the BS and start coming together and put some serious plans in, don't we? Well, I think the business community has to step up. As a senior opposition member, I talk to business almost every day. You know, they come to me and they want me to do this and to do that. I had a, a big oil and gas company uh, this week, you know, requesting a, a carbon constraint, like an economy-wide carbon price. And I said, well, have you asked the government? Because I seem to recall we've been in opposition for seven years. We had one of those and yeah. Tony Abbott repealed it. So when you're out there loud and proud um, calling upon uh, a carbon price economy-wide, we might come out and support it. But, you're, you know, you're amongst the key beneficiaries. You believe that's where the economy should be heading, but you're not prepared to go out there and call for it. Now, if you dig Very down true. into the transcripts, I'm sure you'll see the BCA and yes. and others, you know, say that we, we, we need to do X, Y, and Z, but is there a campaign? And, you know, from my perspective, I'm tired of pushing these things from opposition uh, because it keeps losing its elections. And if we keep losing elections, we we don't get to implement policy, good policy anyway. So I think it's time the business community stepped up on a few of these things and uh, started demanding that the government embark on a true policy reform path in the Hawke and Keating guys. And even the John Howard guys, if you want to count the GST as a bold and, and effective reform, uh, something we oppose and we're wrong to oppose, by the way. Uh, mm -hmm. No one would no one suggested in a growing service service-based economy, you wouldn't have a tax on services. Um, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. But I want the business community to start showing some leadership as well. And if I can say so on your podcast, start showing some balls and start showing some leadership. If they were to start showing some leadership and they had the backing of people like yourself, what reform would you entertain in regards to the likes of tax policy, et cetera, Joel? What's what's the big what's the big opportunities? Well, you know, our tax system has to be one which incentivizes work and investment. That's that's the starting point. It also has to be efficient and has to be sustainable. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm not a big tax and spend man. I'm a believer that the tax system does have to add the efficiency of the economy, and that's uh, first and foremost what we need to do. So I'm not going to pronounce exactly today what that looks like, um, but when a system is ageing uh, and out of date and ineffective, it's time to change. And this government, you know, Scott Morrison won the last election quite cleverly. Didn't say anything. Promising, 
to do nothing. That's right. <laughs> and it's exactly what he's doing, basically. I mean, he, he claimed to be doing a few things with the Nev Power Commission and yeah. his so-called uh, daily arts with the unions. Yeah, there seem to be lots of planning going out there and time will tell whether they manifest into anything meaningful. But what would you do? If you're in, if you're in charge tomorrow or you've got the team together, what's Labor going to stand for and deliver? Well, first of all, I'd go back to basics and ask myself what the Labor Party is about. Okay. So and the Labor Party is about equality opportunity yep. and not walking away from the the base it was formed to represent, and that is working class people, uh, traditionally blue-collar workers, but with a growing service economy, uh, they are people working more in white-collar, but you know in low-paid jobs in our retail store, or stores, et cetera. Now, Keating's industrial relations model uh, was, a, was world's best at its time. Yes. But you can only squeeze so much out of the lemon and, you know, enterprise, the workers can only give up so much as a trade-off to, to a higher wager. So we, we need to look at new models that uh, deliver for the economy and, and deliver for low and middle uh, income workers. I'm not going to pronounce it today, but that's, you know, that's what – so I'd say we've got to think about what we stand for. Yeah. A strong economy, good jobs, job security, backing the people we were formed to represent – and then you've got to ask yourself how how you get there. You've got an efficient tax system that that incentivizes, you know, an industrial relations system which provides for the for the business community, yep. but allows uh, the worker a, a fair fair share of the profits. Uh, you need a retirement savings approach in in an aging economy, and you know the Keating model hasn't run out of steam there. I think, no, although the current mob, the current government, uh, determined to undermine it. Um, and you need an industry plan to, to ensure that, you know, we do that post-COVID recovery period well. And the post-COVID recovery period, that's going to be what, productivity enhancing infrastructure investments? And Infra infrastructure has to be a very large part of it. And uh, I don't understand Morrison's reluctance to do more on infrastructure. We did lots lots of it uh, during the global financial uh, crisis. Did very well in my electorate with uh, a $1.7 billion um, motorway and a $1.2 billion third rail track. Uh, to get more coal to port more quickly and more efficiently, um, you know the schools program, which was demonised by the the opposition of the day, but is still benefiting our our electorates enormously. Um, every council has, you know, a list of um, projects on its books ready to go as long as your arm, you know, which could be creating jobs tomorrow if Morrison just chose to focus on local government. So there, there is lots to be done. But at the big picture, uh, we do need to be getting affordable energy to our manufacturing sector and uh, doing a whole range of things that helps them. Now, I talk about doing the things that are practical and could be done tomorrow. Yeah. Our meat processors face the highest quarantine expected charges in the world, government charges. Now, there's an idea. Three-year holiday on quarantine inspection charges, bingo. Immediate impact mm -hmm. uh, on that sector. Not waiting... 10 years for hydrogen to further develop, uh, et cetera, not even waiting, you know, for the opportunity to construct something that's not designed yet, bang, tomorrow. Small, simple idea. There must be so many of those in the economy if we just weren't looking for them. We've got two things going to happen. We're either going to find a vaccine or we're not. If we don't, Joel, do we keep opening and shutting the economy as we're doing? And what's Labor's stance? I'll give me well, what's your stance on the whole job keeper and job seeker? Well, if we don't find a vaccine, uh, we may have to keep opening and shutting the economy. You may be, you may be an advocate of a herd immunity, and you know there's been some evidence that that might be feasible. Yep. I mean, we've had flus and colds for a long time, and we've developed herd immunity there. We've we've lived with them. 
but this is a particularly virulent strain and dangerous uh, virus, and uh, it, it may be that we will just have to uh, keep shutting things down uh, when things get out of hand. The objective, of course, is to make sure they don't get out of hand, and it shouldn't be all that difficult. Look, I accept that you know when you do things in a crisis, you do them quickly, by necessity, and mistakes will be made. And um, the way, the, to, the provision of a wage subsidy, JobKeeper, was a good thing. You know, Labor had been calling for it. Morrison was reluctant to do it for some reason, but it came. But it came uh, in a messy format. I mean, people, you know, earning three times more than they were previously uh, was crazy. Um, they could have spent the same amount of money and spent it more evenly. If they weren't paying someone who was working a day and getting $200 previously, $750, then they'd have some money to pay a casual that hadn't been casual for, for more than 12 months, and the list goes on. So it was very messy, but the principle was correct, and it's been a godsend for, for the economy. A job seeker, you know, there's this big debate about job seeker. Obviously, the payment's too low or where it was, as yeah. new start as it was then. Used to be the unemployment benefit. It's had a few names. Uh, politicians love to keep changing the name for some reason. Yeah. I think that's a little bit about politics than than good policy. Um, so there's this big debate about what what amount it should be in the future. No one seems prepared. To be, <laughs> no one in politics seems to be prepared to say what they think the uh, the amount should be. Um, but and I suppose I'm amongst them. But it's got to be somewhere north of where it uh, was prior to COVID nineteen. You're on a hypothetical post, you Joe. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern is doing well and minimised COVID cases in New Zealand and the New Zealand opposition are struggling. What do the New Zealand opposition do to win the next election? Pray. Okay. Look, I, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, Greg? It is. uh, we all love our Kiwi friends across the ditch, but you know, I think most of us watch UK and United States politics more than we watch our near neighbours. So I, I don't know. I don't watch it closely. She's she's obviously been uh, a very adept politician, um, running a very progressive government and I suppose a different society very successfully. So she's going to obviously be almost impossible uh, to beat. I know the opposition changed leader um, recently, which usually, uh, I hope I don't regret saying this, <laughs> it's usually a suggestion that the um, the opposition parties in you know some form of disarray or yeah. always come to the conclusion that uh, it can't win with its current leader. So it's you know it's obviously a difficult time for them. I don't know much about them. Uh, all I see is strength from her, and I think she's uh, she's a winner. And I don't have any advice for the opposition of New Zealand. Okay, I just want to roll that to our side of the ditch. What's the opposition in Australia going to do to secure and win the next election? Look, I think we need to be strong and consistent in our message. Uh, I think we need to put the economy first. I think we need to be supporting policies that incentivise work. Uh, I think we need to demonstrate that um, we haven't forgotten about our traditional base. Yeah. Uh, even though we have rightly, you know, grown into a you know a modern and quite progressive party, it doesn't mean you leave your base uh, behind. And we need to recognise the realities that having been a resource-based economy for many decades, uh, we can't just switch that overnight, and um, that's where we have a competitive advantage. You know, we used to have the advantages of proximity to the big Asian economies, but with freight rates falling, that's not necessarily true. Uh, it's almost as cheap to get, you know, grains from the Black Sea countries as it is from Australia, certainly yeah. to Southeast Asia, but, no, sorry, to Southeast Asia, but certainly to East Asia. 
And so we, we need to focus on where we have competitive advantage if we want to continue to grow economic wealth. But we need to be a smarter country too, and that's that's a really big one for, for the Labor Party in my view. People, It's easy for people to understand that that if you're going to have an advantage over your competitors, you get there by being smarter. Now, others might think it's a fanciful thing for a, a population of only 25 million people to be the smartest in the world, but we've done it before. There's so many examples, you know, Wi-Fi and, and, and the like. Yes, uh, We've demonstrated we can do it, but uh, that takes me to the next step, and that is uh, a, a very, very solid education system. And that takes me right back to where I began the interview talking about equality of opportunity and intergenerational unemployment. The only way you break, you can have. I've seen all. I've seen all the labour market programs and interventions on, on kids when they're 16, 17, 18. You you only break that cycle of intergenerational unemployment uh, when they're about five, or in other words, when they leave the family home for the first time, and fall under the influence of others. Uh, they, when they go to the education system, first at preschool and then at kindergarten, that's when you get them. Um, and then from there, of course, as you develop them to a better place, then they need world's best trades and university systems so they can be the best in the world. And I think that is a winner for the Labor Party and we need to continue to focus on that. Do you think you have won that part? Because our education system has slipped in the last decade. The trade has almost been... You're encouraged to go to university rather than become a tradesperson. Uh, what what has happened in our vocational education and training system is enough to make me cry, particularly our TAFE system. Yeah. And if the Labor Party can show a commitment to rebuilding that, uh, it will be a vote winner for it. Uh, the higher education system is far more complex um, and, and mixed, but it has to be a focus for us. The problem, though, Greg, is that it's not always about money. It's about spending money smarter, but... Yeah. Um, to take the, the VET system, for example, from where the Tories have taken it to rebuild it will take money. Now, uh, we took our, our policies into the last election, which would have raised a lot more money uh, to fund some of these things, and it was rejected by the Australian community. So, you know, the Labor Party will need to rethink that approach and then ask itself how much it can do uh, in the vocational education training system, in the higher education system, uh, without those additional sources of revenue, remembering that if we are fortunate enough to be elected at the next election, we'll be inheriting the you know, very, very large budget deficit, uh, which is likely to be with us uh, well beyond the time they put me in the grave. How hard is it to operate on the other side of the bench to get the message across? If I look at you know, TV, news media, you guys very get such a small clipping. It must be exceptionally hard to get the message across, Joe. You know, Greg, I'm very good at opposition because I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> I've been in the parliament for more than 24 years and had six years in government. Uh, so I know opposition well. It's, it's really hard and it's frustrating. You find ways of getting things done by other means. And, you know, I have very good relationships with ministers and uh, I think that's smart. You know, hold them to account, be angry with them. Uh, even feign from time to time if it's necessary, but have working relationships with them, it counts. So, but it's still very frustrating. And, and, I, and as a former cabinet minister, you know, I, I understand the contrast well, the difference between being in government and not being in government. Um, yeah, so it's hard and frustrating. And uh, I don't want to be there forever, obviously. Joel, if you look back at when you started and what you've got surrounding you now in terms of the quality of the politicians. As you said, you cut your teeth, local council, 
but also run your own business. So you're well-rounded. A lot of them is coming out of the staffers. I mean, young staffers coming into politics. Is that the appropriate backgrounds that we want? If we're going to talk about, you just said the smart economy, the smart the smart future. Are these people got the goods? I'd like to see more diversity uh, on the on the green benches, uh, right throughout in the red benches, right throughout the parliament. I think people who come to the parliament with real life experiences or have even been motivated to run because of uh, maybe a bad experience, which is where the whole thing started really, out of protest uh, of working conditions, uh, et cetera, for the Labor Party. People were motivated by something that was happening in their community, something they thought was wrong and uh, something they thought that could be improved. Um, there are a lot of people, I think, come to the parliament now, you know, university, union job, job with a minister, job with a backbencher. Yes. Who just come just to be in politics, basically. Looks like a pretty good geek. Uh, sort of semi-famous, not bad pay, you know, an opportunity to influence things. Sure, I'm not, I'm not saying there's anyone that comes without ambition to change a few things, but they, they don't necessarily come with that, that rage and that determination energy to change something in particular. I'll probably jump all over me now and just make the point I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Um, so I think, you know, but that's not something we can fix, is it? Um, that's, I mean, why would you want to go into politics? For the reason you, know, you did, um, do something good for your country, isn't it? Uh, yes, but it's got harder. It was easier to be a politician when I was elected 24 years ago than it is now. It was never easy. But, you know, the, the scrutiny, the workload, the pressure on the family, um, I mean, I mean, I lived in the bad old days when that was pretty normal. But you know, these days, you know, the, the males in particular are far more family oriented, and for want of a better word, committed. I mean, I was committed, I hope, but yeah, just you know, I mean, they take paternity leave. Yes, for goodness' sake. Yeah. Twenty four years ago, I suggested I might take paternity leave. They'd laugh me out of, out of the building. So, it's a different community environment, which and it's changed for the better, no doubt. But it makes it hard. To, the idea of going into politics a lot harder. Um, pay's pretty good in my view, but a lot of people get a lot more money outside the place. So, you know, I think it's just hard to to get people with those real-life experiences these days. Two last questions, John. Let you go. Populism. Am I voting for a future PM or am I voting for the party? Which way are we headed these days? Sadly, we are becoming more presidential in our style, and that's – that's a shame because we we have a Westminster system and the two aren't particularly compatible. Um, but it is what it is, and we're not going to change that. That's largely driven by you know the proliferation of media and the focus on the leaders yep. uh, rather than uh, who sat uh, behind them. But worse than that, because some might argue that when John Curtin was there, the, all the focus was on him too, but or Menzies. Um, but the problem there really is that we're focused on the person rather than the policies, I think. You know, does he go to the footy? <laughs> you know, does he drink beer? Um, does he laugh at the right time? Is he politically correct or incorrect, or whatever it might be? Is he good looking or she? Yep. I should put in there. Yes. Um, when the focus should be what he or she is going to do for the country. And, uh, you know, I think we could find a way to get people's more focus on not just the headline of the policy, but what the policy means, then we might get some different political outcomes, but that's beyond me and you. Well, if you were to become leader, just say, for example, hypothetical, 
What would you change in the Labor Party and the thinking? Well, I don't have any plans to become leader of the Labor Party, but I, I think the best thing I could do is take you back to what I said, you know, getting back to the basics, uh, thinking for, first and foremost about mm-hmm. why we were formed, what we stand for, and then from there uh, determining how we're going to get there. The big problem for any leader of the Labor Party now is that uh, it the, the party has two political support bases. Uh, one is the traditional uh, base, typically blue-collar, but not necessarily blue-collar. Um, and the other is this, you know, rising progressive left. And, uh, you know, Anthony Albanese represents a, a seat in the inner west of Sydney, which is enormously progressive, although, although they've got some great craft beer. I suppose that's progressive in itself, isn't it? You know, no VB here, <laughs> you know, you only craft beer here. And, you know, I represent a seat in Hunter Valley, you know, full of big coal mines, etc. And Labor needs to be, to get the primary vote to somewhere close to that uh, number with a four in front of it, needs to be able to appeal to both of those bases. And they are very different. So it's a, a very difficult juggle. Now, the coalition get away with this by having a coalition. I mean, we are the largest party in the House of Representatives in the chamber where you form government, yep. and we always are. Yep. They only govern uh, because of this deal where they have between the, the Libs and the Nats. Yes. And that allows Scott Morrison to say one thing in, in Melbourne and, you know, George Christensen or even a, more, a far more senior minister, yep. um, like, you know, Matt Canavan's not there now, but he was in Cabinet. He, he says a completely different thing in, in Gladstone and, and no one blinks an eye. But if Anthony Albanese says one thing in Melbourne and, our great candidate, Zach Beers in Flynn in central Queensland, and he was a great candidate, um, says the same thing then. He's got no chance of winning. So how does the Labor Party uh, maintain the balance which you know, where, which appeals to both political bases? Or in other words, which renders it capable of winning an election? I don't have all the answers to those questions. They're difficult ones. But our balance hit must be, and we go back to that proposition I put earlier, yeah. never let the perfect get in the way of the possible. Because you're really up against it, aren't you? And when I, when I say that, it's because you talked about Curtin. Curtin was the PM during war. How many governments have changed during a wartime? And COVID is a pretty good example of almost like a wartime mentality, isn't it? The nation's been bonded by this one thing. So Morrison, whether you, like you say, good, bad, or indifferent, he's ahead, and he's a long way ahead. Yeah, incumbency can be very powerful in times of crisis. Look at you know, Winston Churchill, they kicked him out five minutes after the, exactly right. the war, yeah. but they stuck with him like glue during uh, the darker days. So Morrison has played, you know, he's maximised the incumbency, in, in my view. He's followed the medical advice, the health advice, uh, the departmental advice. You know, he's not he's not done anything particular um, revolutionary. He's just plodded no, along and followed the advice. And most people would think, hmm, other than for what's happening in Victoria at the moment, it's turned out pretty good. So he's all right, this guy. Fairly steady. Sort of a safe, safe bet. So that's a difficult thing for the Labor Party. But you're pretty irrelevant in opposition no matter what uh, in any circumstances or it's hard to secure relevance. I, I often say that a, a young Bob Hawke would be struggling for traction in this environment if he were the opposition leader. Uh, it's tough. But I am very fearful about how the Labor Party will manage this balance I was talking about yeah, and juggle absolutely. these two electoral bases. And I do fear that uh, it won't be in my time, but uh, the party might end up splitting it, yeah. splitting in the past. It, it has split in the past. 
and um, you know we'll have a coalition arrangement just like they have that you know with with uh, you know, the the future local members in in Sydney and Melbourne you know pushing their agenda and and uh, leaving their mark and the guy in central Queensland with the other Labor Party you know you call it new Labor old Labor whatever you like to call them doing something else and forming uh, a coalition I mean in the early I always told the school kids that in the early days of federation, the government, I always say to the kids, do, do we need an election to change the government? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we don't. The government can change on the floor of the House of Representatives tomorrow, That's I right, tell yeah. them. And in, in the early days of federation, that happened. Um, so there, there might be a whole change in the polarisation of the chamber in 20 or 30 years' time. Uh, and it may be that the, the Labor Party will be in different forms. Um, the, the key thing, of course, is its capacity to win. And because, again, I say we, there's not much point being there if you're perpetually in opposition. So I don't want that to happen. I, I hope it's unlikely, but I, I, I just don't know how we reconcile the difficulty of being all things to people in Batman in Melbourne yeah. and another, another thing to a group of people uh, living in central Queensland. Well, on, on, can, I, can I just make one more point? Go for it. Uh, Labor suffers with this obsession uh, of uh, with discipline. We are the largest party in the country, uh, and therefore arguably the most diverse party. We're a big, broad church, but we have the strictest party discipline, not just in Australia but in the world. You know, look at the UK and the Commons, or the Congress in the US, or even in New Zealand. Do you see? Do you see the level of party discipline? We have here in Australia, no. Um, no, and even I would suggest the Liberal Party has amongst the strongest discipline in the world here in Australia. So it's part of the culture. But what happens in the Labor Party? Uh, and we've put a great store in unity. You know, you've got to be united, divided party. You're a rebel. You can't win. Yeah. But uh, we're asking people uh, to to be homogenous and correct. When a Labor Party per, uh, member or senator does speak, you know, one degree out from where the leader is or the perceived party position is, it's front page. Why is it front page? Because it rarely happens. But on the other side of the political divide, you have the Libs and the Nats doing it on a daily basis, and even Libs on Libs. And if you take it to a state level, John Barillaro. You know, he's, he's the deputy premier and on a daily basis he's attacking liberal ministers um, without holding back. And they sort of get away with it. People look at it and think, fair enough. You know, and I, we, don't, we don't expect everyone in a big political party or parties to think exactly the same on every occasion. I mean, it would be a, it would be a folly, wouldn't it, to, to say that, you know, up to 100 members of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party all think the same. And if we're, if we're trying to tell people... We all think the same. I think they're a bit of a wake-up, aren't they? Couldn't agree more. Um, that, well, you can't all be thinking the same. And if someone has a d disagreement, look, I think... Uh, Are you marginalised pretty quick? Absolutely. And look, I think I think a public contest of ideas makes for a vibrant party. It doesn't mean we're, dis we're, we're, we're disunited, we're, we're split. Um, it just means that we, we bring different perspectives and we all should be, we are and should be creatures of where we come from and that's our electorates. You know, it's you know, it just takes to an extreme. I remember when Graham Campbell, a long time ago now, before my time, was expelled from or was suspended from the Labor Party. No, he wasn't suspended from this for this crime. He was suspended a little bit later on for another crime, but 
um, he was let off the hook when he crossed the floor to vote against the gold tax. Well, Graham Campbell, you know, the member for Kalgoorlie, voting for a gold tax suicide. for the first time, yeah, it's just political suicide. <laughs> so let's have some common sense. Now, in the commons, they've sort of gone for common sense. So for a long time now, they've had what they call first, second, and third line whips. Yes. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a facade, really, because you get permission. You know, I can't remember which order it is. Either first line whip is a, the most serious a matter, and the third line whip uh, a more frivolous matter. So third line whip, let's say. You know, you just do whatever you like. Second line whip, I think you've got to sort of semi get permission to cross the floor. And first line whip, you cross the floor and you're out. You know, so so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a facade to have a, a structured system which allows you uh, to do it on certain issues. But uh, party discipline, as we know it in Australia, in my view, uh, won't last. It can't. Not for the Labor Party, and not even for the Liberal National Parties. Well, I can't, not based on your track record, what you said. What is it, six years out of 24? Well, yeah, it hasn't worked too well for us, has it? No, so you like, and your, your point is absolutely 100% right, isn't it? You've got to create different ideas, bring allow people to debate without necessarily... You, know. you, you become the government by winning more seats than the other mob. And if you want, yeah, exactly if right. you want people to win seats, they've got to be champions of their local community. And it's pretty hard to be champion of your local community if you've got to stick to a political policy um, that's death in your in your electorate. And now I'm putting that almost in the extreme, but you know that there, there is something in that, and uh, we need to think long and hard about that. Joel, if you were writing the valedictory of the next Labor government, and maybe you were the, the man in charge, how would it actually read? I'd like to think I would reflect on what a great government we had been. Uh, I'd no doubt note some of the mistakes that were made because they always are. No governments are perfect. Um, but I'd rejoice in the fact that when we made mistakes, uh, we did so out of a determination to do the things that the Labor Party was formed to do. And if you were to look back at that young bloke as he's starting to begin his career, starts as an apprentice and moves into politics, what advice would you give him now? Um, the need to form friendships and alliances to to fully understand that it's pretty hard to do anything uh, on your own, uh, that you need to gravitate to people or have them gravitate to you, people you who, who share your ideals and objectives uh, and to seek to effect change collectively. On that, Joel, thanks for joining us today. A great pleasure, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.